0: Bitcoin plunges below $20,000. The New York State Attorney General says Ether is a security. And President Biden wants to slap Bitcoin miners with a 30% electricity tax. And by the way, serious jitters in capital markets on concerns about the banking sector. Welcome to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington. I'm joined today by friend of the show, Santiago Velez. Santiago, welcome back to the show. Ugly
3: News Flow Day. Ash, thanks again for having me. Uh, this great times. Empire Striking Back. It's going to be a great show. Well, you're still
0: Luke Skywalker to me, Santiago. Uh, lots to cover here. Let's jump in and take a look at the price action. It's fair to say it's been a brutal 24 hours for crypto markets. More than $70 billion has been wiped off the value of crypto. The total crypto market cap has fallen 6.5% on CoinGecko, way below the $1 trillion threshold. Let's start with some important news on the macro front. The U.S. economy added 300 excuse me eleven thousand jobs in february that's more than expected although not nearly as high as the spike we saw the previous month in january unemployment ticked up 3.6 percent that was also above expectations although earnings grew by less than expected moving back to crypto markets bitcoin fell below the key psychological level of twenty thousand dollars that's the lowest price in two months bitcoin is down nearly six percent over the past 24 hours The loss on a trailing seven-day basis has hit double-digit percentage change. According to blockchain security company PeckShield, some $1 billion worth of Bitcoin in wallets associated with U.S. law enforcement was moved onto crypto exchanges earlier this week. This might be adding to the selling pressure that we're seeing right now, as it suggests authorities could try to cash out Bitcoin that they had seized, obviously, in criminal and civil forfeitures and seizures in the past. Meanwhile, Ether is trading in line with Bitcoin, the current price of ETH is just over $1,400. That's uh, a two-month low as well with double-digit percentage declines on ETH earlier this morning uh, as well. I believe that's on a seven-day trailing basis. Santiago, lots to digest here. What's your take on this market?
3: Well, frankly speaking, if you've been in this uh, market for long enough, you see that these cycles tend to repeat themselves. And we are definitely in a continued bear market and likely to go sideways with lots of volatility. So- uh, expect that for the foreseeable future. Uh, the, the tide is going up. Liquidity throughout the entire financial system is is evaporating. Financial conditions are tightening, and we're going to keep seeing who's not wearing pants. So, um, all par for the course. You know, buckle down.
0: Listen. Let me talk about something else that's very much on my mind right now, uh, and that's what's happening right now in the banking system. You alluded to it in your comments uh, there. This, to me, really is the question of the hour. Uh, this story begins yesterday with a very prominent bank in the tech world uh, called SBV. That's Silicon Valley Bank. It trades under the NASDAQ symbol SIVB, uh, that Silicon Valley Bank Financial Group, or I should say traded under the ticker symbol SIVB as it's currently suspended. It hasn't been delisted. Let me not overstate the case, but it has been suspended. Uh, and just in the last, literally the last five minutes here, uh, Silicon, let me just read the headline. Uh, this is direct from CNBC.com. Silicon Valley Bank is shut down by regulators, FDIC, to protect insured deposits. Here's the lead. Silicon Valley Bank has been closed by regulators, which have taken control of the bank's deposits. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation announced on Friday. You can go up to the FDIC Website. Uh the headline there is FDIC creates a deposit insurance bank of Santa Clara to protect insured depositors of Silicon Valley Bank, Santa Clara, California. Okay, why are we talking about it in crypto? This is a big story for reasons that I'm going to allude to. But first, let me give a little bit of context on what happened with S- uh, SBV, because uh, this really gives you the broader context in a macroeconomic sense. So yesterday, the bank announced a $1.8 billion after-tax loss. Uh, they announced they were attempting to raise two and a quarter billion billion in new equity. CNBC reporting this morning that they were unsuccessful in their ability to do it, and they were attempting to sell the bank. The shares plunged some 60% yesterday. Trading was suspended. Uh, and now this. Story is about much more uh, than this one bank in San Francisco. Shares in other tech-exposed banks uh, like PacWest also plunged double-digit percentages uh, on the news. I'm looking right now, PacWest on my screen. Wow, trading off nearly 25%. That's trades under the symbol on NASDAQ. PACW uh so again trading 25% down on the day uh, after taking a beating yesterday as well here's the macro upshot of it this is why we're talking about it on this show on the crypto show this is why we're leading the show with it uh yesterday we saw the worst moves on the KBW Nasdaq Bank Index since the pandemic that's 3 years ago march of 2020 this morning the 2 year treasury yield uh moved in its most severe fashion uh since since uh since 2008 Uh, This is a huge, huge uh, drop in yields. That means prices are spiking. People are moving out uh, of equities and and into fixed income. Presumably, that's why you'd see the yield drop that dramatically. It's like 40 basis points. It is a massive, massive move. I was tweeting about it this morning. Uh, So what's this all about? This is about uh, a run on deposits. We talked about this with Silvergate. I should say Silvergate was a sponsor of Real Vision Crypto in the past, just to make that disclosure. Uh, What does that mean? So this is the deal. When banks lose deposits, they need to sell other assets to make up for the shortfall in capital they have. Uh, When they sell their safest assets, U.S. Treasuries, they need to mark those assets to market, mark to market, Uh, on the losses. There's a great article about this. If you're looking for the explainer on what's happening here to try and understand, to try and get your head around these broader macroeconomic issues, take a look in yesterday's Wall Street Journal. Uh, Jonathan Weil and Ben Eisen wrote this fantastic article uh, about this called Banks Lose Billions in Value After Tech Lender SBV Stumbles. I want to read from you this because they did an excellent job of summarizing it. These are guys with serious backgrounds in accounting and really understand the macroeconomics uh, and also what happens in in the banking sector, quote, banks don't incur losses on their bond portfolio if they are able to hold onto them until maturity. But if they suddenly have to sell the bonds at a loss to raise cash, that's exactly what's happened here. That is when accounting rules require them to show the realized losses in their earnings. Those rules let companies exclude losses on their bonds from earnings. If they classify investments as quote available for sale or held to maturity. Sometimes the losses catch investors by surprise, even if the problems has been slowly building and fully disclosed for some time at SVB, unrealized losses have been piling up throughout the last year and were visible to anyone reading its financial reports. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation in February reported that U.S. banks unrealized losses on available for sale and held to maturity securities totaled, wait for this number, $620 billion as of December 31st, up $8 $8 billion a year earlier before the Fed's rate push began. The Fed's rate push, that's what this is all about. You've heard Raoul Pal say it here on Real Vision many times. Crypto is macro, macro is crypto. You just got an opportunity to see that transmission mechanism, how that works between uh, macro financial conditions, the banking sector, and what's happening in crypto. Boy, Santiago, this is just a massive story. I-, I know that's a lot, but that's the background. What are your thoughts on
3: all this? Well, you know, I think they got Powelled. Um, we've seen the, the the greatest rate hike uh, in history in, in the shortest period of time, and you can't absorb that amount of tightening without losses. Um, and you know, for those who may not understand, bonds are inverse to the rates. So the the value of the bond and that collateral goes down as rates go up because there's a better deal in town. You know, if I'm an investor and I'm going to buy a bond from one of these banks that's liquidating and they had that bond at you know, 1% when they bought it. Why would I buy that? Uh, I'm going to buy it at $0.90 cents on the dollar, $0.80 cents on the dollar. So it becomes a huge loss on their books. Yeah. And ultimately, it's kind of a stress on confidence, which is the main factor holding the banks together. It's the confidence that people have that their money is safe and it's going to be there when they need it. And when it all starts unraveling, that's when you get a bank run uh, and that confidence is shattered. So, you know, I think they got Powelled.
0: Uh, boy, Santiago, you said that absolutely beautifully. Uh, you made so many important points there. First, explaining the inverse relationship between prices and yield. Uh, absolutely critical to understanding this story. And second, uh, the idea of confidence. I would only add one thing to that point, And that's the this elegant article from the Wall Street Journal, which uncovers this so beautifully, which is this. One of the things that's maybe a little bit surprising here, people might say, hey, look, we've all known that yields have been rising, right? This isn't a surprise. We know uh, that quantitative tightening has been very much on the cards for a long time. Now, why does this stuff happen all at once? And what the article describes is this This is an accounting feature. This is the way mark-to-market accounting works. You may ask, why don't these things kind of decline slowly over time? They don't. They go like this, cliff face down when something hits. Why? Because when a bank has to liquidate some of those assets, that's when they have to take those mark-to-market losses. Uh, That's when those losses show up. That's when they take the hit. And that's when you get these things that seem to happen uh, out of left field. These have been building under the surface for a while, exactly as you described, Santiago.
3: You know, I think it's just to quickly mention. It's probably one of the reasons why there's remains risk in stablecoins uh, because a lot of stablecoin issuers uh, take similar approaches where they get short dated securities or, or commercial paper, uh, but eventually it, it really comes down to the rate and the amount of yield that they can generate and the confidence in in, in, a, in a particular run. So it's it's important to correlate what's going on in the banking sector with what could potentially occur um, in stable coins and in crypto writ large.
0: Yeah, I should say, Santiago, this is a huge story, but there's also a lot of other news flow to talk about this morning. The New York attorney general has claimed that ether is a security. The assertion came as part of a lawsuit against the crypto exchange, QCoin. The lawsuit alleges QCoin is violating securities laws by offering tokens that meet the definition of a security without registering with the attorney general's office in New York. And those tokens include Ether. Coindesk reports this is the first time an official, in this case, a state-level official, the New York State Attorney General, who has filed suit in the Supreme Court of New York, has made this claim in a U.S. court. SEC Chair Gary Gensler has hinted at it as well, uh, but has not made the claim yet in any formal lawsuits. Santiago, if this were to become a legal precedent, and that is still a big if, and it's a long way away uh, based on the flow, it seems to me at least at this time, it would have massive implications for the entire crypto industry. What do you make
2: of it?
3: Um, you know, I just think it's the uh, empire striking back. This is the coordinated effort by lots of three-letter agencies at the federal level and now at the state level um, to essentially rein in crypto into the regulatory framework and use whatever tools at their disposal um, to do so. Uh, you know, I, I think that this could be a, a legal precedent-setting type of case. Um, it will likely uh, uh, be challenged all the way, obviously. Uh, I think it hits at the core of what yield means, uh, in particular uh, for proof-of-stake type networks, Um, and it could be that the way uh, exchanges handle that facilitation of yield on behalf of delegators could be at the root of the case. But we'll have to see. There's a lot in the complaint to digest, Uh, but it's, it's a big deal.
0: Yeah, we should point out, of course, neither you nor I uh, are lawyers. You, of course, are a nuclear engineer. I'm just the dope who asks questions on Real Vision. Uh, But listen, the important thing I think to note about this case is that this is a state case. So this doesn't have binding federal precedent. This has been filed uh, in the state of New York, in the uh, Supreme Court of the state of New York. This is not in the Southern District at the federal level. Uh, That's a distinction we'd love to have some lawyers uh, come on and discuss with us in more detail uh, and unpack there. Uh, But unfortunately, Santiago. This is not the only negative news flow of the day. Uh, Ether is not the only major cryptocurrency that's been hit with a negative headline today. U.S. President Joe Biden's budget proposal features several crypto-focused measures. The most notable one includes a 30% excise tax on electricity being used to mine Bitcoin. It would start off at 10% before going up to 30% within three years. The aim is to reduce, reduce, mining activity in the US quote, an excise tax on electricity usage by digital asset miners could reduce mining activity along with its associated environmental impacts and other harms. Close quote, uh, Santiago, while it's by no means a certainty that this proposal will become a law, it's bound to send a chill down the spine of US Bitcoin miners. And I would add probably more generally, the cryptocurrency community here in the United States.
3: Um, you know, I, I think this is this is at the crux of the ESG uh, movement in general is the idea that certain kinds of activity, uh, uh, in particular electrical consumption, is, is good activity versus bad activity. And it's a very subjective kind of assessment. And, and so the problem with this is uh, whether or not miners who access a common utility like the grid um, should be subject to these kinds of excise taxes. Uh, versus, say, a miner who co-locates and generates their own power, would they also be subject to the same kind of tax? And so th- this this is definitely going to hit on a lot of constitutional issues, on property rights, um, on uh, First Amendment, You know, if you're talking about node operations or hashing operations. Uh, so this has broad implications. I think that number of 30%, um, if you look, it coincided with a proposal to raise uh, capital gains taxes also by some, some upwards of 40%. So this is kind of a shot across the bow of Congress, and I think that it's kind of the beginning of a negotiation to try and, and raise revenue federally across the board. So this is more um, tightening only at the fiscal level. Uh, so we, we can continue, you know, we'll, we'll expect to see uh, more liquidity leave the system and tax policy is another way that that happens.
0: Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. you know, fiscal tightening to be sure, but also uh, this definitely looks like something that's very much targeted at the crypto industry, and they're talking about reducing mining uh, and not just merely raising revenue. Look, you know, uh, we don't do political uh, sort of arguments here on Real Vision in 2023. Uh, no matter what you believe politically, there's a network out there on cable television that will tell you you're right. We don't like to have those conversations, but it's pretty clear. Uh, I think that the Democratic Party here in the United States is positioning itself uh, in a way that is clearly uh, not terribly friendly to crypto. Maybe I'm understating the case. Maybe. I'm I'm overstating it. Uh, But there are a series of proposals here uh, on the table that do seem to be making uh, this point. This is definitely moving in a a political direction, uh, unfortunate to say. By the way, one other story that I wanted to touch on here uh, before we bring in Hugo. The U.S. Department of Justice has launched an appeal against the court decision to allow Binance U.S. to buy Voyager digital assets. Various regulators, including the SEC, have opposed the acquisition. But earlier this week, the judge in the crypto lender Voyager's digital bankruptcy case approved it. This deal is worth more than $1 billion. Uh, Santiago, lots of people have been eagerly following this case. Those who breathed a sigh of relief, I guess it was yesterday, may have done so prematurely, it seems.
3: Well, you know, I think there's some hope on the horizon for people who had exposure to Voyager Digital. Um, and, you know, I, I think they're they're happy to hear that, that this judge um, uh, voted in their favor, that there's some light at the end of the tunnel. Um, But, you know, I think there's a bigger trend, uh, which is this idea of uh, companies that have any kind of association to Binance uh, in in terms of the international company uh, and and that playing into the whole tech narrative. You know, we have Silicon Valley companies who have uh, deep ties to China. We've seen Congress uh, bring that up in testimonies. I think this will likely play into that narrative at some point. Uh, but, we'll, you know, we'll have to see. But it's definitely good news for for uh, people with exposure to Voyager.
0: Yeah, I think that's well said. And obviously, uh, we're going to have to wait to see the outcome of this appeal uh, before we know where this is going to land, particularly uh, with, re- you know, in relationship to this Voyager bankruptcy case and where those assets will go. OK, viewers, join us in the conversation Put down your questions in the chat wherever you're watching. We'll ask the best ones on air later in the show. Remember, Real Vision members take priority, but the good news is Real Vision crypto membership is free. With that said, let's bring in our next guest. Hugo Fillion is the CEO and co-founder of Flare Network. Welcome to the show, Hugo. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. I'm going to let Santiago take it away from here. I'm going to hang back and enjoy the show. I'll see you guys soon.
3: Hugo, great to see you again. Uh, For all our Real Vision uh, subscribers, viewers, check out the interview we did with Hugo a a, a little over a year ago on the Flare Network to do a deep dive on what's being built. But today we're gonna do a quick recap, explore what Flare is.
1: Thanks for coming on, Hugo. Hey Santiago, Uh, yeah. I, I don't feel like I'm really running a blockchain project at the moment, just a risk management project trying to hop, hop and skip between different U.S. banks. Um, so, Yeah,
3: yeah, it's, uh, it's a tough time to be building a, a blockchain, a layer one, and, and try to solve problems in this environment. But if you can do it in this environment, then I'm sure you'll fly when when things uh, turn around and get better. So, you know, good luck to that. That's, that's a good, good job. <laughs> So, uh, you know, let's start off by asking, um, you know, what what is Flare? Give us a quick rundown of the tech stack and and see if you can try and differentiate it from other L1s and the kind of problems that it might be solving in lieu of, you know, why not just use Ethereum, for example?
1: Sure. Uh, So look, Flare is an uh, EVM-based Layer 1 blockchain, but uh, we're trying to solve the problem really of usefulness, i.e. utility. So just to kind of backtrack on that, right now, many of the newer L1s and L2s are trying to solve scaling. Um, this makes transactions cheaper and allows dApps to scale. Uh, there's a worthy and necessary ambition, but once once solved, in reality, that becomes a commodity technology. I, you know, pretty much once there's a great scaling solution, pretty much every blockchain will probably adopt it. It doesn't necessarily give you a, a lead or some kind of defensible moat. What we're trying to solve for is utility. And how we're trying to do that is through building an L1 smart contract platform that's purpose-built to acquire data from any open external source. Um, and why are we doing that? Well, aside from crypto as an alternative asset class, which it obviously is and uh, today, and you know, the unfolding of the fiat system or maybe unraveling of the fiat system over the longer term um, is, is showing us that. But DeFi is really the only other blockchain product other than being an alternative asset class that has meaningfully scaled to date. Um, But its use cases are pretty limited uh, due to the limitations of L1s. Uh, I also question how much uh, in DeFi is actually decentralized finance, i.e. finance in the traditional sense of um, financing economic activity versus speculative activity. Uh, our belief is that we need DApps to play a larger role in people's lives. For this to happen, those DApps need data, and that data has to be decentralised and 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 today has to be decentralised and secure. And today, there's really no Oracle product that delivers off-chain data, regardless of what source it comes from, that is decentralised and secure and uh, you know ro- sort of robust to risks. Um, and so Flair's goal is to make blockchain more useful by develop, offering developers a, a, a layer with access to high-integrity decentralized data from other chains and the internet. So this allows engineers to develop applications that securely connect Web2 functionality uh, and utility to the Web3 ecosystem.
3: Wow, lots to unpack there. So let me just deconstruct a couple of things I, I think I heard. Um first of all, the evm, it's the Ethereum virtual machine, and just for our viewers to understand that doesn't mean you're using ethereum. It means you're just using an emulation of a computer to process smart contracts and it happens to use the same programming programming language that ethereum uses, like solidity, for example sure. so so sure. the ethereum virtual machine it's just a separate uh, kind of a uh, 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 software stack that uh, like Flare installing has. a version of Mac os. Mm-hmm. And so, so, that's the first piece. The second thing I heard that I think is is pretty important is this idea of bringing in data from the outside world. You know, blockchains right now are their own kind of closed universes. They don't know what's happening outside of them, uh, and they just process transactions and they move along. Uh, but it, what you guys are trying to do is essentially bring in data from other blockchains. You know, the state of Bitcoin or XRP or any other uh, uh, ledger, as well as data from the internet, right? It could be data from Twitter, it could be data from a stock feed, uh, you know,
1: commodities market, real world data. Is that correct? Absolutely. It could be Twitter data, could be social media data, TikTok data, um, you know, any open index, any open data, it's fair game for Flare. Yeah, and and that's a
3: challenge, right? Because to, to your point about how do you make sure it's authentic, that it's provable, and that if you're gonna take action on it, meaning a smart contract is gonna process as some value, that that data has some, some integrity to it. And so you've devised a Oracle system uh, which decentralizes that process of ensuring that the data is delivered with integrity. Is that correct? So
1: um, I think, you know, I should I run a bit through the the, the kind of general outline? Mm-hmm. So, you know, as I said, Fleds an EVM, they one blockchain. Um, it has two data acquisition protocols that are secured directly by the network. And this is really important. This is why it matters. Uh, with leveraging the scale of an L1 for the decentralization and security of the data acquisition protocols, this is extremely different to an Oracle um, that's built on top of a blockchain and therefore cannot really decentralize, cannot cannot leverage these many, many parties and potentially very large amounts of value to secure uh, that that kind of um, data. So the, the two um, protocols, first is for price and time series data, so that's called the Flare Time Series Oracle. Uh, it delivers highly decentralized time series data feeds to, to DApps. Uh, currently, um, those are digital asset price pairs, but it could be any index, could be carbon emissions, can be anything that moves over time. Um, essentially, anything that doesn't have a single source of truth. Uh, so this has currently, you know, at the moment, uh, we believe that's the most decentralized oracle in the space. Uh, it's also, um, you know, one of the most accurate. Currently, updates every three minutes, but uh, you know, that's that's a that's a parameter choice that that can be as low as thirty seconds. Um, second is called the state connector, and that is for blockchain state. So uh, as you said understanding what's happened on Bitcoin, understanding what's happened on XRP, understanding what's happened on Ethereum. Um, Really, um, you know, being able to prove what has happened on another chain. Uh, That's for blockchain state and Web2 data. So being able to prove a single source of truth API that is quasi-deterministic onto Flare. So you send a tweet, you leave it up for half an hour. During that period that you leave it up, We can prove that you sent that tweet, and we can prove information about that tweet. We can prove the content. We can prove uh, how many retweets it has, how many likes it has. If you delete it, obviously, past that point, we can no longer prove that. But during the time it's up, provided it's up for long enough and the network's able to come to consensus over it, we can prove that data onto the network, and an application can use that. And that extends massively across basically any open internet data. So uh, that's the FlareTime Series Oracle and the State Connector. Uh, Together, these protocols really give developers access to high-integrity data, Um, really can't get this on any other blockchain. Uh, And that's why we call Flare the blockchain for data.
3: So is this kind of like connecting the Internet of Information and an Internet of Value so that you can make more interesting kind of decentralized applications? Is is this really the first instance where we've had a chance to merge those two networks together and, and, and build? And, and what kind of use cases do you think could come out of this?
1: Yeah, so, uh, you know, it's EVM layer one, so it can have its own ecosystem of, of applications. And those applications can be, I guess, a number of things. So it can be uh, referential to the network itself, so DeFi on the network. It can be referential to other blockchains. Um, so those can be things like bridging applications, relay applications, secured by Flare. Why would they be secured by Flare? Because Flare can prove what has happened on each network. It can slash relay nodes that are staked on Flare accordingly. So dApps on Flare, dApps built on Flare for interoperability, and then dApps <coughs> that access Web2 data. Um, and then the, so the model's not so fixed. It, it can be on the chain, built on the chain, built for the chain, and also can be built for the chain and then relayed to other chains uh, through, you know, relay protocols. So it's kind of like a multi-use tool to try and sit in the middle of all blockchains, but also have its own ecosystem. So, you know, use cases are crypto interoperability. So, you know, really creating good bridges, good relays. Um, but then things like, okay, so I want to monetize a game that exists in Web2. Maybe it's free to play. Um, but maybe I want to have a, some secondary level. Maybe I don't want to. Maybe I want to have micropayments. Uh, maybe I don't want to have to process credit cards because it's a nightmare. Um, you know, I can just point my uh, allow Flare to absorb the API and for users to basically make microtransactions between each other. And I can take a cut in the, in the smart contract. Those kind of things. So, do you see an, a, a
3: scenario where you know I could tweet something and earn a payment through Flare? Uh, Absolutely.
1: Um, I, you know, I see. You know, I see affiliate marketing as a really interesting. It's essentially affiliate marketing, right? Someone puts up a a, a job and says, you know, we've got a hundred thousand dollars for you know to promote this product um, for every. 500 retweets will give you a dollar, that kind of thing, Uh, you know, and that can be administered directly on the network through proving, uh, you know, uh, proving from the Twitter API, assuming it remains open source, uh, that that has happened.
3: Excellent. Now, I'd like to kind of highlight the um, distribution mechanics of Flare because it was a very unique Approach, um, and it was arguably one of the largest airdrops in crypto history. Can you talk a little bit about that and why uh, the decision was made to do it in this in this
1: way? Yeah, absolutely. So Flare started life as essentially a network for uh, chains that have uh, that don't have smart contracts. So uh, you know, Dogecoin, Bitcoin, principally XRP, um, and so we chose to distribute the token to XRP holders. Uh, Flare then morphed over time uh, to become a very, very much larger project with very much larger ambitions. And so um, we we have essentially a public token pool, uh, which is being distributed over 36 months. 15% of that was distributed to the original XRP holders, and then the remaining 85% is being distributed to anyone that essentially uh, obtains the token and wraps it. So, you know, if, if they're using the token on the network, then the network will distribute the token, uh, the remaining portion of that airdrop over 36 months in equal installments to people that wrap the token.
3: And how many, do you have any idea of how many tokens, actually, uh, excuse me, exchanges participated in this distribution? And uh, obviously it went to individual wallet holders.
1: So uh, individual wallet holders, uh, more than 100 exchanges, every major exchange. Barring FTX, because they went bust. Um, yeah, every major exchange. So, um, Binance, Coinbase have publicly said that they will distribute the token. Um, and, you know, every other major exchange. And so give
3: this distribution mechanism, um, can you differentiate Flare from, say, Ethereum, and, and how it's different from, say, a tr- traditional proof-of-stake uh, and the yield that comes out of pr- proof-of-stake? How, how are they different, and, and uh, why don't you need to worry about some of the things that, that you know, uh, Ethereum might
1: have from a regulatory perspective? So I, I don't know what you need to worry about Ethereum from a regulatory perspective, to be, to be clear. Um, I'm not certain that proof of stake is an issue. Uh, but regardless, um, at, the, at the moment, people are delegating to um, the oracles, So they're not staking currently, although there will be an element of staking in the future. Um, but that'll be, you know, in, in, built in a, in a different manner. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm sort of not um, uh, not really cognizant. And we have discussed this. We have a securities lawyer on team. Uh, have had a securities lawyer on team from day one. Uh, so, I, I guess we've not found a strong argument uh, against proof of stake. There are good arguments for collective investment schemes where. Uh, you essentially say, um, stake your token to me, I'll give you a a staked version of the token, so a liquid staking token, and then I'll stake the token on your behalf. Mm. That's very much a a collective um, investment scheme, you know, probably. Whether it fits into the definitions of what a collective investment scheme is, I personally am not a lawyer, so I don't know. Um, But that smells and looks a bit like that. I'm not certain that staking in its pure form um, where the, the, the network is actually administering everything uh, sort of fits into that definition. Great answer. Yeah. It's a tough, it's a tough spot. And it kind of points out,
3: you know, for anyone building again, in a space, you know, how to navigate this, yeah. this really tough environment. Uh, uh,
1: again, it's all completely undefined and um, you know, are the powers that be are doing their best to leave it as undefined as possible.
3: Yeah, that's that's for sure. Awesome. Uh, Hugo, what else you want to let us our viewers know? What, where can people learn more about Flare um, and what do you hope to see happen over, say, the next year in the development?
1: So I think, uh, you know, you can learn about Flare at Flare, network, and our Twitter is at Flare Networks. Um, I think I'll just jump on a couple of things, you know, Just, uh, you know, I I often get asked, you know, how do token holders participate? And, uh, you know, there's obviously delegation to the FTSOs, so wrapping and delegating to FTSOs. Uh, When you delegate to FTSOs, you can still use your tokens in applications. So you can essentially uh, put your token in an application, specify to that application uh, where you want that token delegated to. Uh, but still enjoy the rewards of that application. So that's very important. Um, then there's governance. Uh, Flare is the uh, key voting uh, token for the governance system. Uh, and then, of course, if you hold Flare and you wrap it, uh, you'll receive a share of the uh, airdrop over 36 months. Awesome.
3: Uh, we can find more information about Flare at flare.network and the Twitter yep. hashtag at Flare Networks. So definitely yep. a good follow. Hugo, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Uh, I, best wishes in this environment. I have no doubt that you and your team uh, will, will do a great job. Um, thanks for coming on. We're very excited. Thanks so much, Santiago. Excellent. So now I'm going to bring back in Ash. We've got some viewer questions. Fantastic conversation. Really enjoyed that one. Hugo, I hope you'll
0: hang out with us uh, for a little while to do some viewer questions because we've got some good ones coming up. Let's do it. Hey, everyone. We're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing.
3: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near
1: you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us.
3: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
0: Excellent. So before we go into our viewer questions, we want to show a clip from the latest Raul Powell's Adventures in Crypto. Raoul spoke with Chris Berniske, who led the crypto division at ARK Invest before moving to Placeholder. You can watch that video on our website in full. Go to realvision.com. Slash crypto to sign up for free, let's take a look.
2: The proof of stake-based assets are trickier because if you try and value them um, based on their their value flows, they're they're recursive, right? Because you're you're getting value in the stake-based asset, and then the stake-based asset is fluctuating in US dollar price. I think a cleaner way to go about it is just looking at yields. Um, and you know the the higher risk of the network the the higher the yield should be and so and do you use real yield, or you know I adjusted for inflation on the protocol or or do you just keep it just basic so I mean, I would look at it from both um I think that like eth is the only one that that has real yield right um yeah and the, the others are all right now subsidized yield through inflation. Um, now, I think that all these protocols are going to have a choice to make of, will their base just tolerate low amounts of inflation right? to, to subsidize the work of the validators? Or are they going to get to a place um, where the transactional demand for block space actually makes it a quote unquote profitable protocol like we see with, with ETH? Um, and so, but it's a great question because we need, um, we need standardization, right? And so like, I think that, um, there should be, for example, on the, the, um, increasing number of valuation methodology websites, such as token terminal, um, you know, there should be real yield as, as one metric, um, and, um, and then the other forms of yield
0: Again, you can sign up at realvision.com forward slash crypto to watch that video in full. Fun story about Chris Brunisky. Back in 2017, when I was working at... uh at, uh, over at Coindesk, I had all these questions I was annoying my editor with about the way that the financial structure of crypto markets worked. And I kept like peppering him with these questions. And after about three weeks of this, he was like, you know, dude, I, I don't know, but I know there's a guy who you should talk to. His name is Chris Berniske. He's an incredibly smart guy. He really understands markets. Call him up and ask him these questions. And I went onto that, into that phone booth Uh, at a WeWork where we were working down in Midtown Manhattan with a list of questions. And I got Chris on the phone and I asked him like 10 of these questions in a row. And he paused and he said, dude, let me explain it to you this way. It's a green field, man. Nobody knows these answers to these questions. And that's what makes this so exciting. And that was like this weird moment that I thought, oh my God, Crypto is the most interesting space, not just in tech, but in finance as well. And that, I think, was may have been the very moment that I was hooked. Like, if it were like a bad B-grade movie, that would be the moment where, you're, you know, you're in the phone booth jotting stuff down. We were like, oh, man, this is it. This is pretty wild stuff. Okay, lots of questions coming in. Uh Let's start first with questions from the Real Vision website and the Discord server. Uh, This is a great question. I was actually wondering this myself when you guys were talking. This one comes to us from Rodolfo on the Real Vision website. How does Flare view Chainlink as a competing protocol in the Oracle space? I guess maybe that question contains a presupposition. Do you view it as a competing protocol? What are the differences?
1: I think broadly, no. So Chainlink uh, delivers data to apps, um, and Chainlink is... Uh, you know, broadly focused on price data and some narrow subset of data. Flare is a blockchain for data, to secure data that a developer requests, uh, essentially builds uh, a small module um, and requests the network to support. So Flare is massively extensible and secure and highly, highly decentralized. So it's kind of like apples to oranges. They're just vastly different things. Um, Chainlink's been unbelievably successful. We're not trying to replicate what they did. Uh, we're trying to offer all of the data in one place for consumption by applications for free.
0: Nice. All right. Fair enough, by the way, Santiago, so you don't feel neglected. There's a question for you uh, from the real Vision website. Uh, and the question is this: Is there any future blockchain applications for nuclear energy space? Boy, there's no one better qualified to answer that question than you, Santiago. What are your thoughts?
3: Mm, tough. I mean, I would say if we can figure out how to securitize um, modular deployments of nuclear power, which I think is the proper future, i don't I don't think building giant uh, industrial scale plants, you know, 1,000, 2,000 megawatt plants is the the answer. It's CapEx prohibitive. Um, I think that will become modular in nature. And in doing so, there's an opportunity there to tokenize that as a security and allow exposure to, you know, lots of investors. So in that sense, definitely. And and of course, in supply chain, I think uh, tracking where uranium comes from is going to be super important as Mm. the world bifurcates. The United States gets a lot of Uranium from Ukraine, from Russia, or it did Kazakhstan, other other jurisdictions. Uh, so having that highly tracked, you know, traceable and transparent is, is going to be super important. Uh, so I, I do see a role there.
0: Really interesting point, Santiago. World. I don't know much about fantastic. Uh, this is a question from Ralph on the Real Vision website and one of our regular viewers. How has Hugo found the regulatory environment in the UAE?
1: So, we're not, um, we're not a UAE based company, uh, but I can tell you that the regulatory environment here is extremely friendly to crypto companies, to entrepreneurs, to proper people doing it properly. Um, I was at the SALT conference in Abu Dhabi, SALT Investopedia conference in Abu Dhabi last week. Um, it was really interesting. I've been to a lot of crypto conferences, and I've rarely seen interesting panels. This was incredibly interesting. Um, So it's very clear to me that some of the best people in the space are coming over to the UAE. And that's really borne out by the numbers. I mean, it's sort of becoming the crypto capital of the world. Mm. Uh, And I think uh, the more the US puts its thumb on the scale, I think the more the UAE will benefit.
0: Okay, let's move on to some questions from YouTube. Uh, this one comes to us from KRH for Santiago, actually, on YouTube. Any thoughts on the exposure stablecoins may have to commercial paper? I'll give a little bit of background context on this. Uh, commercial paper, short-term lending of U.S. Uh, and international corporations. One of the questions out there uh, for stablecoins has been to what extent stablecoins are backed by commercial paper, uh, which can sometimes uh, be less uh well, I think it's fair to say it's probably uh, less credit worthy than obviously U.S. Treasury, and some other securities. Uh, Santiago, jump in. Any thoughts about this stablecoin exposure to commercial paper?
3: Well, you know, I think uh, if what we're seeing in the banking sector is any proof of is that stablecoins may be a misnomer. Um, it's only as good as the confidence of the holders. And if there is a run on the unquote" bank, uh, uh, whomever the counterparty is who issued the stablecoins, you could have an insolvency problem. So um, commercial paper, regardless of its quality, is still subject to that same problem, that confidence issue. Uh, With specific actors, we know that uh, USDC Circle, for example, uh, was connected to the Silvergate network, the SEND network. That's going to be problematic, uh, and they're trying to navigate around that to get banking. Um, There's obviously a concerted effort to debank a lot of crypto related projects in the US. So that's gonna be a challenge. Uh, But at the end of the day, I think um, the future may have to rely on algorithmic type constructions of stable coins, which of course with the volatility is equally challenging. So uh, lots of tough problems to solve.
0: Indeed, and very well said. Uh, Gas fees on YouTube for Hugo. The question is, can Hugo comment on Celsius and what happened to Flare? on that platform looks like the tokens were removed from the app hugo thoughts
1: um i can't comment on what uh, celsius uh, you know do internally uh we have a dialogue with celsius and um you know they've worked extremely hard to get permission from the court to distribute the token so i expect that to happen at some point
0: Okay, this one comes to us from Juggler on YouTube. How decentralized is Flare? How much Flare does the Foundation hold?
1: The Foundation holds less than fifty percent l- of the Flare. Less than sorry, the Foundation holds Sorry, less than ten percent of the Flare. Less than ten percent. Yeah, currently. So. Um, a very small amount, and then our our, uh, our company, which is called Flare Networks Limited, which is a corporate. So that we have a a foundation which is charitable to support the, um, essentially the network, uh, and a, and a company which is where you know the people are employed. Um, is that is broadly about twenty five percent.
0: This is a fun question. This comes from Killis on YouTube. Can Hugo touch a little more on the functionality of Flare in the real world things like weather reporting, et cetera?
1: I love that aspect of Flare. Yeah, so, you know, you could create weather markets on-chain. Um, you could create carbon markets. You could create, um, there's a big trend for daily, um Uh, daily options at the moment where, you know, options, people buying very, very short-term options, uh, you can replicate that very easily with an Oracle on Flare.
0: Excellent. Guys, great conversation. I really enjoyed listening to this. Uh, It was cool to get to listen to it in real time with you. Uh, Give us your final thoughts, key takeaways. Hugo, first to you.
1: So I think... um, you know, uh, I, I don't know if you're interested in my thoughts on on what's been going on in the macro space, but I think, please, uh, broad, broadly to me, uh, a lot of what's happening is kind of the reason why I got into this space in the first place. Because I, I genuinely and have felt for a very long time that the existing banking system and the fiat system is going to unravel in some structure. Not sure where it goes. It's impossible to predict the outcomes or the the timing. Uh, But I genuinely think and I think we need to remember that crypto offers over the long term, not today, a viable alternative to the fast that's happening more generally.
0: Well, Santiago, uh, it seems as though Hugo's timing is uh, quite impeccable today to have that as a key takeaway as we start to see these kind of wobbles in the traditional banking system. Uh, Santiago, final thoughts, key takeaways from you.
3: I think bear markets are for building. And I think that we can get distracted a lot with uh, the noise and uh, the fear. Uh, But, you know, shops and projects that build in this environment and do so robustly, they hold the greatest promise, I think, for when, you know, the inevitable Fed pivot, bull run, whatever you want to call it, um, you know, this is a cyclical market. So Pay attention to those projects that are building real value and utility in the system. And I think that in the long run, that's where, as investors, uh, we'll, we'll do best.
0: Hey, listen, I've only got one key takeaway today. Uh, You guys covered a lot of ground here in the conversation and we did at the top of the show as well. But I just wanted to add this. If you're interested in hearing more about what's happening in the banking system, uh, points that Hugo just touched on, that I touched on at the beginning of the show, uh, turn into Real Vision Daily Briefing today. This is at 4 p.m. Eastern time, uh, where we're gonna be talking with Warren Pies, founder of 314 Research, about this and obviously other topics. Uh, This touches very much uh, on what's happening in crypto right now. These markets are interlinked. Uh, As Hugo pointed out, uh, I think lots of Bitcoiners have had these thoughts about the banking system for a very long time. Uh, So tune in today, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 Pacific, uh, to Real Vision Daily Briefing, where we're going to continue that conversation. Uh, Hugo, Santiago, pleasure having both of you. Fantastic conversation, as always. Thanks for
1: having me. Thank you very much. Have a great day.
0: That's it for today. We'll be back the same time Monday. Angie Lau, Jeff Garzik, Perry Ann Boring, and Mark Yusko are among the lineup of stellar guests we'll have on the live show next week. Also, make sure to check out realvision.com as well. We have an important two part series called How to Unf Your Future. It features some of the most visionary thinkers and investors we know. As we mentioned previously, this week we'll be exploring all the ways in which we're all featuring Rao Pal, Dario Perkins, Frederick Niebrand, Peter Zion, and Alex Gurevich. Next week, thankfully, we'll be moving on to the solution. We'll leave you with the trailer. See you on Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific time, noon Eastern, 5 p.m. London, live on Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Have a great weekend, everybody. If we want to
3: change the outcomes for this really screwed up world, where our wages don't go up, where we're being replaced by technology, where governments are massively in debt and we foot the bill via taxes, where we see debasement of assets so we can't afford as many assets as we like. So the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. If we don't like to see the rise of populism based on this broken society because the promises of the future have been broken, let's make our promises to our future selves come right. And that's by unfucking your future. Some of this is going to really f- your future in 20 or 30 years' time, but we've got time to figure that out because it's unstoppable.